Well, we said we were going to look for three answers to the question, who is this man? The first answer that we see in this text is that Jesus is the God-man. Now, at this point, the religious leader's animosity toward Jesus has really reached a new height. It began in the first week of his ministry when he walks into the temple, crafts a whip, and drives out the sacrificial animals. He turns the money-changing tables over. (laughs) That was just the opening salvo in Jesus coming on the scene. Pharisees knew it. I wouldn't be surprised if they also knew that he had befriended the the Samaritans, the, the sworn enemies of the Jews. And get this, he consorted with a woman who had had five husbands and now was living with someone who wasn't her husband. That's scandalous. And then Jesus had the audacity, can you believe it, to heal a man on the Sabbath. What a lawbreaker, avoiding and, and, and blaspheming the fourth commandment. But the most offensive thing to them that Jesus did was to call God his father. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying, that he and God were one. Now, Jesus was simply telling the truth. But to the Pharisees, Jesus had done nothing more than throw down the gauntlet and said, game on. They weren't going to let it go unaddressed. Their reputation, their authority, their privileged status was all at stake. They weren't going down easily. And so, as John says, they sought all the more to kill him from that point on. And now, here at the Feast of Booze, Jesus is at it again. So with this building tension, the religious leaders aren't playing around. But guess what? Neither is Jesus. On the last day of the feast, he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. They're looking at each other like, what is he saying now? Is he going back and claiming that again, that he and God are one? Now, certainly some of them didn't pick up completely on what Jesus was saying. They thought he was just leaving the area and going to preach to and teach to Jews who lived outside of Israel. As we've seen so often in John There's a disconnect between what Jesus says and what people hear. Their ears are closed. They don't understand that he was hinting again, saying directly again, I'm going back to the Father, the one who sent me. Who is this man? He's the God-man. Last week, Kenny preached a message titled, There's No One Like Jesus. And there's countless reasons why that's a true statement. But one of the greatest and most mysterious is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. If we're honest, we have to have some sympathy for the religious leaders, don't we? Now, they should have known. They should have known their scriptures better than anybody else. They should have made the connections. They should have been willing to examine the evidence that Jesus was giving and connect the dots. But they only see a common man in front of them, someone who had no form or majesty about him. Itinerant preacher, hung around with fishermen, a tax collector, and a bunch of zealots. He didn't even have a a bed to lay his head on. How in the world could an unknown, uneducated man from Galilee claim to be the Son of God? 
mysterious as it is for us, as confusing as it was for them, this truth that, that Jesus is God lies at the heart of the gospel and is the pinnacle of our hope. Two natures, one person, distinct yet completely indivisible. Jesus was fully man, and he experienced the full range of a human life. Like us, he was physically born, nursed by his mom, crawled in the dirt, ate and drank, learned to walk, went through the teenage years. He worked, and he rested from work. He had friends, and he had enemies. He loved parties, and he cherished solitude. He knew joy and sadness, hope and doubt, love and anger, loyalty and betrayal. But, but most importantly, like us, he was tempted in literally every way. Now, with all that, Jesus was also fully God. And when I say he was fully God, he wasn't just like God. We have to get this. This is a different, different statement. He wasn't like God. He was and is God. Every attribute that we associate with God, Jesus himself had. Never began to exist, will never cease to exist. Knows everything, all-powerful. But most importantly, and most unlike us, in all of his life, in word, thought, and deed, he never sinned, never broke God's commandments, was fully faithful in all of the law. And the religious leaders understood this, and that made them live it. This, this section made me think of a sweatshirt that Andrea bought a little while ago. She's out, I think she's out in children's ministry now. It says, Jesus is God. And she goes, Dave, this is going to be a great sweatshirt. It's going to really initiate some interesting conversations when we go out. That's her hope. My hope is that she doesn't run into any modern-day Pharisees. I also hope if we ever go to Europe like Isaac did, that she doesn't wear in the Paris airport and get some conversations in the concourse there. Now, because Jesus knows everything about the religious leaders, he tells them that they cannot go where he's going. Even if they look for him, they're not going to find him. What, what in the world is Jesus talking about by saying that? Saying something pretty serious. He's saying that there is a predetermined time that's fixed for all of us. That predetermined time is when we will believe in Jesus. And once that fixed time arrives, it will be too late to change our minds. So if the religious leaders continue to reject him as they have, they're going to die outside of Christ. They will be the cause of their eternal demise. Now, Jesus is being patient with them, just as he is with us, but his patience has limits. So think, we're not different than the Pharisees, the religious leaders. We can't see the future any more than they did. So this is, a, this is a question for anyone who hasn't said, I believe in Jesus. How many days do you have left? You can't see the future. How many days do you have left to say, Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died for my sins. Thank you. 
Change me. I want to be your disciple. None of us know the day. The only thing we know for certain right now is that we have one less day today than we had yesterday. And tomorrow, guess what? We have one less day than we have today. It's a sobering statement Jesus is making. We spend far too much time thinking about today, how we're going to have fun today, what we're going to do, what we're going to accomplish, where we're going to go, and far too little time thinking about the vast majority of our life, which is eternity. The Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Jesus is always near. Remember, he's everywhere at once. He's God. That's the first answer to our question. He's the God-man. That truth makes possible the second answer that we're going to look at. The second answer is, he's the giver of life. The Bible's very clear. We didn't just appear out of thin air and a bunch of carbon molecules that gathered together randomly over billions of years. God has breathed into us the breath of life, individually, personally, created and made in the image of God. We owe our physical lives and every breath that we take to Jesus. But even more importantly, Jesus gives us spiritual life. He said to Nicodemus, what? You must be born again. And here on the last day of the feast, Jesus tells us how that's going to happen. And he shifts gears by challenging the religious leaders to pretty much shouting to them about thirst. And his shouting is not angry. It's not self-righteous. It is motivated completely out of compassion and love for everyone there, including the religious leaders. He wants them to be satisfied with more than physical life. He wants them to find life in him. That, take hold of that life which is truly life, not the image that we see here. The Bible uses vivid metaphors like physical thirst to point out what's most important, our thirst for God. The Jews knew this. The Jews lived in a dry and arid region. There wasn't plumbing. There wasn't running water. They knew what it was like to thirst. And that's why the psalmist wrote so descriptively as they did. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And this, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where what? Where there is no water. God can, through Christ, turn a desert into pools of water and a parched land into springs of water. About 15 years ago, a guy named Dave Bouchel thought he'd challenge himself. He paid over $3,000 to be taken deep into the Utah desert to see how far he could push himself. But by day two, in the blazing heat, Dave was in really, really, really bad shape. Racked by cramps, pale, his speech slurred, hallucinating, falling all over the place, mistaking trees for people. After about 10 hours that second day, dying of thirst, he fell flat, flat down in the dirt on his face, and died. He was only 100 yards away from a cave that he was, he was going towards 
that had cool running water, which is what he was striving for. He wasn't, though, alone. This is the sad part of the story. Dave was not alone. He was with 10 other hikers and two experienced guides. And those guides had water. They were carrying full canteens of cold water, but they never told the hikers. They wanted to see. They only wanted to use them in an emergency. And guess what? The hikers knew it too, though. Even though they weren't told, they heard the water sloshing around in all these canteens that the leaders had. That's tragic. The guides don't know what an emergency was. Obviously, Dave didn't. The guides never once offered Dave or any of the other hikers a drop of water. And Dave, at the cost of his life, maybe because of pride or arrogance, fear of what other people would think, Wood was unwilling to humble himself and say, I hear that water sloshing around. Would you give me a drink of that water? Jesus has chosen the Feast of Booths to announce that he has water for us. He knows our desperate condition. He says, I know you're thirsty. Even if you don't think you are, come to me. I have what you need. This is what he was saying at this annual fall celebration of the feast, a feast where they commemorated. One of the primary things they commemorated was when their ancestors were walking in the desert and they were thirsty and famished and were complaining to Moses for taking them out of Egypt. Moses, after talking to God, takes his shaft and strikes the rock. Water gushes forth and their thirst is quenched. They're, they're thanking and remembering God for his kindness there. They thanked him for the harvest of crops, that more rain would come. Water was everywhere, you guys, at the Feast of Booths. This is, a, this is an important connection here in this passage. Every morning for seven days at this Feast of Booths, the priests would gather water and march around the altar. This water in jugs was gathered, interestingly, from the Pool of Siloam. And we're going to see in a couple chapters that this is the same pool that Jesus sends the blind man to, to be healed. That's the pool from which they were drawing water for this feast. So the priests are marching, trumpets are blasting, choirs are singing, and when the singing comes to an end, the entire group shouts in unison, thanks be to God, thanks be to God, thanks be to God. And then the priests take the jugs of water and pour them as a sacrificial offering onto the altar. That happened for seven mornings at dawn. But when Jesus gets up, it was the eighth day, the great day. And on that day, there was no marching, there was no singing, there was no water pouring out. Why is Jesus there on that day? He's there to say, I am the water. I am the one to be poured out as a sacrificial offering. Don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Notice that he's crying out. He pleads with them. He didn't just casually invite people to consider, take a drink. What do you, why don't you think about it? Pray about it, have a drink. He says, come to me and drink. Drinking is believing in Jesus. 
That's the analogy that is made here. As passionate as the religious leaders were to kill Jesus, Jesus was even more passionate to invite them and everyone else to come drink of him. Jesus was not hiding the canteen from anyone. He knows the desperate condition of all of us, anyone who has never first drunk from what he's offering. They will die. So he says, come and drink. Kind of reminds us, doesn't it, of the Samaritan, his encounter with the Samaritan lady. He asked for uh, a drink of water from the well. After some conversation, Jesus then says, everyone, drinks, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never, I love the way this is said, will never be thirsty forever. Isn't that a great way? to say and talk about what we really need. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Next, notice this. Who is it that he's inviting? You ever seen those movies that depict the Depression era in the 30s and early 40s? People are hungry, out of work. Husbands and wives are desperate for a job. They line up before dawn at factory gates, hoping that they're going to be able to make money that day to put something on the table that night. So they're waiting at the date gates for hours. The foreman comes up and says, you, come on, you. No, 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 not you, but you. None of you people over here, but I'll take you people over here. Praise God, that's not how Jesus relates to us. He says, anyone who is thirsty, everyone is welcome. Rich and poor, black and white and brown, blue collar, white collar, men and women with tattoos, without tattoos, a public disreputable past, or just a hidden past. Jesus invites everyone to come drink. And lastly, notice this. We don't have time to get into everything about what's here, but notice what he says about the Holy Spirit. He says that out of everyone who believes in him will flow rivers of living water. And John says that Jesus is at this point speaking about the Holy Spirit that will be poured out at Pentecost. Now remember, Jesus is the headwaters. Jesus is the headwaters. He's the source of all eternal life. It's nothing that is in us. But the rivers that, of living water that he flows into us are not meant to be contained within us. Once we've tasted and seen that he is good, we should allow and be willing and be joyful to allow the Spirit to, to move out beyond us. Rivers of life should flow from us, not perfectly, but in a way, in a way that causes people to stand up, take notice and say, what in the world are you drinking? <laughs> That's not the way you were before you drank. What is in that water? Give me some of it. If we've been refreshed by Jesus, church, our, our lives have to demonstrate it. Doesn't save us but it demonstrates that we have had the living water poured into us. And this is particularly true with what our culture and our country is going through. 
if we're not living in a manner worthy of the calling that Jesus has given us in a way that's reflective of the spirit that's been poured into us, we have missed everything, guys. Go to Galatians 5.22. That's one of your prayer bullets today. Go there. Ask God's spirit to say, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Where can you praise God for what he's done in you? And where do you need to seek grace to grow so that people can ask that question, what are you drinking? Church, God has given us all good things to enjoy. But anything that we thirst after more than Jesus, the Bible calls a sin. We might think that we're thir- what we're thirsty for at the moment will satisfy, but we're deceiving ourselves. We're kind of like that guy that's on a raft in the ocean, hasn't had fresh water for days, surrounded by water, and he thinks to himself, what can it really hurt? I'm really thirsty. What can it hurt to just take a couple gulpfuls of this water and I'll be okay. I can get through this. The first few sips really taste good. The cold goes down well. But after a few gulps, that person has done nothing more than write his own death sentence. Let's not drink salt water. Let's drink the water that Jesus offers. What is it, though, that keeps us from drinking what Jesus so freely and lovingly offers us? Maybe you've had that initial drink and said, yeah, I'm good. I'm I'm set. I've trusted in Jesus. But maybe it's been a while since you've been back to the source. Maybe the world's worries, distractions, or temptations have distanced you from Jesus. The walk of a disciple is not a walk in the park. It's more like a trek in the desert many times. My encouragement is when your soul feels dry, when you feel lost and hazy and confused, go to the Psalms. Those men that wrote that were familiar with suffering, with dryness, with barrenness. And it's impossible to not notice that as they craft their writings and their songs of praise, they start out in the valley, but they end on the mountain, worshiping God, praising and thanking him. Why? Because they've been satisfied in God. Maybe, though, you're someone who's never had that first drink. You've been content, maybe. Maybe God has blessed you with common grace. You've been content like Solomon to enjoy what he's given you. But remember what Solomon said in his second book. It's all vanity. It's all going to pass away. Don't settle for second best. Or maybe you're someone who has tried everything and you're no longer experiencing common grace. God in his kindness has pulled the goodness of life away from you. And you're, you're desperate to find joy and peace. Jesus says... Come to what truly satisfies. Come to me. John kept this theme. If you read in his first letter, John 1, he says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father but from the world. And the world is passing away along with his desires. Let's not pass away with the world. 
So there we have our first two answers to the question, who is this man? He's the God-man and he's the giver of life. And notice how these two answers lay the foundation for the third answer that John gives us. The final answer is that Jesus is the great divide. You may have heard of the Rocky Mountain Range being referred to as the Great Divide. Every drop of rain that falls east of it ends up in the Atlantic. Every drop of rain that falls west of it ends up in the Pacific. Jesus is like the Rocky Mountains. He causes division. His claims are so bold and the choices he offers are so stark that division is inevitable. We've just read about how his claim to be equal to God and the giver of life causes the officers, the crowds, and the religious leaders to argue. John says there was a division among the people. We're going to see that happen for the rest of John, all the way to the cross. Jesus is the great divide. As Jason preached a few weeks ago, you're either in or out with Jesus. You're going to the Atlantic or you're going to the Pacific. Raindrops can't straddle the Rocky Mountains. We cannot straddle Jesus. You're either for him or you're against him. And it seems like here in this chapter, the religious leaders have made up their minds and they refuse to drink. But how ironic is it for them to take that stand? These are the men that year after year celebrated the Feast of Booze. They're the ones that preached about the coming Messiah. They're the ones that poured the sacrificial water on the altar as a symbol of what God has done and what he will do. But right in front of them, pleading with his arms open, was the Messiah himself, the one who actually brings fulfillment to what they were celebrating for centuries goes unheeded. Whether it's pride, unwillingness to come, satisfaction with our present lives, they ignored the Savior. But notice the other group that, there, that is there at the end of the chapter, the, the officers who went to arrest Jesus. What is it they said? They said, no one has ever spoken like this man. I think they were at least willing to ask the question, <laughs> and entertaining the desire to go drink. Nicodemus may already have done that. No one has ever spoken like Jesus. No one has ever spoken like the God-man. No one has ever spoken like the giver of life, and no one will ever speak like the great divide. John's given us those three answers to the question. The only unanswered question is, Will you drink? I'd like to bring Brandon and the band up. In just six months, Jesus will be on the cross. And like the blow that Moses delivered to the rock that caused water to gush out, Jesus would be pierced in the side. And out of his body would flow water to purify and blood to cleanse us from our sins. Praise God for what he did there. But before that spear for us, remember what he said? He said, I thirst. Now being fully man, his strength was dried up. His tongue, as the psalmist says, was stuck 
to his mouth. His body craves something cool. But to fulfill prophecy, the soldiers unknowingly gave him sour wine. So hanging on the cross, about to die, Jesus chose obedience over comfort. Why? Because he loves us. His thirst for God was greater than the thirst of his flesh. He thirsted so that we, as Jesus said, will never thirst forever. What a man and what a savior. I thought it'd be good in closing to finish the story. If you remember last week, Kenny shared with us a little bit from the silver chair. And if you remember where he left off, Jill was thirsty. She was tired and scared, but she was afraid. She saw the brook over there, but she was afraid to approach it because guess what? Aslan the lion stood between her and what was going to be so refreshing. Lewis writes this. He says, it never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had ever seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. But before she tasted it, she had intended to make a dash away from the lime at the moment she was finished drinking. Now, though, after tasting, she realized that running away would be on the whole the most dangerous thing of all. Kneeling before Aslan to quench our thirst is the safest and most refreshing place to be. Amen.